God's word says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let's pray. Lord, as we just sang, we want you to come and speak to us. Lord, through your word, inspire us, encourage us, build us up so that we might reflect you to those in this world, that we might be a light so that you're, you might shine in this dark world. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, many of you know that on December 7th, 1941, Japanese forces surprised the U.S. fleet in Hawaii with an attack on Pearl Harbor. But along with this attack, they also launched a massive offensive against the U.S. Pacific forces and Filipino forces in the Philippines. The men there held on with meager supplies, outdated weapons, and no air support. However, finally on April 9, 1942, 75,000 Filipino and U.S. soldiers surrendered. The Japanese then forced these men on the infamous Bataan Death March. Battle-weary, often sick, and starving men were forced to march 65 miles to Bataan in sweltering heat and with little rations. The Japanese soldiers considered prisoners of war as little to no more value than cattle, and they constantly beat the prisoners of war, killed those who fell down and tortured them. Estimates range that anywhere from 2,000 or more Filipino and U.S. soldiers died just in the brutal march alone. Although treatment of prisoner wars didn't improve once they were in the camp, and by the end of the war, estimates are that over 30% of U.S. soldiers died there. Well, during this horrible time, a U.S. Air Corps officer named Ed Dias from Albany, Texas, which is about 40 minutes northeast of Abilene, or two hours southwest of here, started forming a group of men to attempt to escape to tell of these atrocities. Dias had been transferred with some 2,000 men to an island where the Japanese were making them work to supply them with food and other supplies. Well, Dias started looking around, and he selected the cream of the crop from every branch. He ended up selecting 10 men, two other men from the Air Corps, three from the Marines, three Army personnel, and the ranking officer of the Navy, along with two Filipinos to attempt an escape. One man, John Lucas, comments about this. You have here guys from basically every branch of the service, every part of the country, and Dias uses team-building skills to select this group, this all-star team of escape artists to accomplish this mission. Well, Dias leads these men on one of the only, if not few, escapes from Japanese war camps. He avoids capture for a few months, and then with the help of Filipino soldiers who are fighting and resisting, they get a U.S. submarine to come up, they take the submarine off, and they are led to freedom. Now, put yourself in Dias's shoes, if they let him have any. And when he's still in the camp, he's looking around going, which men should I select? Which men are going to be brave enough to endure? Which men are going to have the mental, the psychological, the social, even physiological strength 
and skills to not just escape, but to keep it a secret. And then have months afterwards where you're having to still get away. You know, this mission was too important just to go and select anybody. He wanted the best, the brightest, the strongest. Well, here in Luke 6, 12 through 16, Jesus chooses 12 men to be his apostles. Men who will be the leaders of his mission and message once he accomplishes his task, his death and resurrection, and is called back to his father. And the importance of these men far outweighs what Dias was having to select. You know, the men who Dias was selecting were to then go and let others know of physical atrocities that were happening. The men that Jesus was selecting were men to go and tell that deliverance had already come, that Jesus had secured their safety, their deliverance, their redemption. As we look at this this morning, we're going to see three important things about the men and the way in which Jesus chooses. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back page. First, in verse 12 of chapter 6, we're going to see the preparatory prayer of Jesus. Then in verse 13, the appointment of apostles. And then lastly, in 14 through 16, the people Jesus chooses. Well, you may have noticed in verse 12 that what did Jesus do first? He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And God has given us four beautiful gospels telling of what Jesus did. And each gospel sheds a slightly different light on the diamond of Christ. One thing Luke often emphasizes is the prayers of Jesus. You know, for Jesus, prayer was not just a nice adornment to put at the beginning of a meal. It wasn't a religious element to add a serenity or seriousness to a, an event. It wasn't merely seeking divine approval for what he already wanted. For Jesus, prayer was like breathing. His life depended on it. He longed for the communion and delight he had with his Father. He searched and wrestled with his Father in prayer. And here... He sought the wisdom of his father. You know, we in life have many important decisions. And we want to know, what is God's will for me in this choice, in this decision that I have to make? Well, prayer is one of the three ways God guides us and directs us. God gives us prayer. He gives us scripture. And he gives us the godly counsel of other Christians. So we might know, what is God calling us to do? Now here... Jesus couldn't pursue the godly counsel of others because there was no other group. He is, that's what he's doing. He's setting up the group that will be his authorities. As well, there was no one who is his equal. So here he pursues his father alone. But we have to realize our distinction from Jesus. We do need to seek counsel from others when we have important decisions. You know, I often find that Christians sometimes hide behind prayer as validating their decision. Well, I've prayed about this a lot, so this must be what God wants me to do. Well, maybe, but we can pray lots about things that are wrong. We should, before we get to the moment of decision, offer our plans up to other godly Christians, say, would you help me think through this? Is this wisest and best for me to do? And so God gives us scripture. He gives us prayer and counsel for our decisions. And we see that will become the pattern of the early church. For example, in Acts, when they have something they need to do, what do they do? They always are quoting scripture. They have counsels and talk, and they pray. This is how they choose their leaders, Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, 
they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so Jesus here is showing that his choice has to be spent in prayer, all night in prayer even, pouring out this situation to his father, considering and wrestling over who he should choose. And I don't know about you, but sadly I have to admit, I'm prone to go through all the efforts of thought and planning, and then right before I'm about to make the decision, go, uh, God, please bless this decision. Well, Jesus is here reminding me by his example that that's reversing order. I should first pray. First, ask for wisdom, even in the searching and the talking to others. And then, even as I'm doing that, continue to pray that God would help me, give me wisdom. And this doesn't come easily for us. That's why we have to set aside, we have to carve into our lives time to pray. Time to pray with one another. You know, accountability and support of what's going on in our life. You know, I pray, no pun intended there, but... God would encourage us that prayer with one another would be a normal part of our lives together. That when we're together, it wouldn't be weird if someone said, well, let's stop and pray about that right now. But that would be normal. And then we would even be seeking out people saying, hey, could we get together and then let's pray about what's going on in my life. I would encourage one great opportunity is Wednesday night. We carve that out. But that's not the only time. I hope that's not the only time we're praying and praying together. Pouring out what's going on in our lives together. Well, Jesus wants to know the Father's will of who to choose. And that leads us next to the appointment, the second point, the appointment of apostles. Verse 13. So Jesus was all night in prayer. Daytime comes and Jesus calls all his disciples together. Disciple just refers to a learner or a pupil. And here we see there's this large group. And of this large group, Jesus is going to choose 12 to be his apostles. Now why did Jesus choose 12? He could have picked three. And as you read through the Gospels, you see that he did spend extra time with three, Peter, James, and John. He could have picked 15, or 11, or 8, or 1, or any number. So why did he pick 12? Well, this number is clearly important because when Judas is gone, they feel the need that we need to replace him. We need to get back to having 12. The number 12 was significant. Well, why? Well, Jesus deliberately picked 12 to show that he's creating something new, a new people of God. He's doing this to tie in with the 12 tribes before, and yet something new. This is the new garment that Jesus talked about before in Luke 5, 36-39 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Now, this is not to the destruction or removing of the Old Testament, but rather in its continuity, the fulfillment. And that's why he picks 12, because he's wanting to show there's continuity. I'm not getting rid of that, but it's also newness. Jesus will make this clear later in Luke, Luke 22, 28 through 30, where he says, talking to the apostles, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 apostles are going to be in the place, the leadership over the 12 tribes of Israel. It's also important that Jesus called them apostles. The word apostle comes from apostolos, which means sent one. It's a word kind of like the word Google, which can be a noun or a verb. Google is a noun. It's a thing. You can go to Google headquarters. You can go online to it. It is a person, place, or thing, a noun. 
But you can also Google something. It's a verb. Hey, go Google that. Well, apostle in the New Testament could be a noun or verb. It could be apostle, a thing, a role, a sent one. Or it could be a verb, apostoleo, I send you out. You should be sent. And in this sense, we can say every Christian is an apostle. Because Jesus sends every one of us to go out into the world. We're all, in that sense, apostles. However, words carry generic and specific meanings. Here, Jesus is giving the word apostle a specific meaning, referring only to these 12 men. So though Jesus has many disciples who he sends all of them out, the term apostle only refers to these 12 men who are called to be his representatives. You know, the word really comes from an Old Testament idea called shalak, where someone would be an official representative. We think of this in our culture as someone like a power of eternity, who can function in the place of someone with their power and approval. You may have seen this in the Old Testament. King David, before he's king, he's fleeing, and he's helping this woman named Abigail. And Abigail is wise and beautiful, and when David hears that her husband dies, what does he do? He sends men to go propose marriage. It's not because he was unromantic. It's because he knew that he could send these people who were speaking for him, and her response to them would be accepting David because they were speaking in his place, his official representatives, his shalaks, for using the Old Testament word, or his apostles. And here, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you 12 men who are going to speak in my place. I've given them divine approval. He is giving them his spirit. And so Jesus will say in John 16, 13 through 15, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you apostles into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Therefore, the New Testament will say that the apostles' words are a command of the Lord. Because they were commanded and given this position by the Lord. They'll even say that if they disobey their message, the apostolic message, they're disobeying God and should be treated as unbelievers. Now this may seem all kind of trivial, academic, okay, well, all these words mean. But this actually still plays out today into very important things. Very important ways Christians live, at least in two. First... It's not uncommon for me to hear or read people saying things like, well, I love Jesus. I just don't really agree with the apostles. It's like the red letters of the Bible, Jesus, that's great, that's wonderful. The rest of the New Testament, I don't really like that so much. Yet Jesus is showing here that to disagree with his apostles is ultimately to disagree with him. You can't draw a line of distinction between them. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 20-21, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So yes, Jesus is the cornerstone of the faith through which everything is built upon and showed to be right, straight, and true. Yet Jesus, as he goes through and quotes the Old Testament prophets, and as he now divinely sanctions the apostles, he's saying that his message, his mission is going to continue through them. So not only did Jesus 
speak through these 12 men, but we also need to realize that when they died, their role ceased. We already mentioned that when Judas died, they called a council. They met together and they replaced him. But in Acts 12, James, the apostle, will be put to death. And we never read of a council to come and replace him. Because these were 12 men given a foundational role. And once the foundation is laid, it's not laid again. And we even see the uniqueness of these men by the way they are especially rewarded by the Father in heaven. Revelation 21 describes the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And it says in verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Twelve distinct, unique, and temporary apostles whose role ended with them. So Jesus comes down the mountain. He's praying, specifically chooses these twelve men to be his apostles, and divinely authorizes them to be his representatives. But who are these men? Well, we turn to that next, in the last section, the people Jesus chooses, verses 14 through 16. And Luke here provides us with a list of 12 chosen apostles. You can look at the New Testament, there's four lists, and every one of them has Peter or Simon first. Peter was a name Jesus gave to Simon, it means rock. And Peter is one who is very vocal, he's the leader of the group. He's the type of person, when he's not sure what's going on, he speaks. He's very bold. He'll say wonderful things. He'll declare wonderful truths about Jesus. But then he'll also turn around and he'll denounce Jesus. Peter's the one who will boldly declare, we'll never forsake you, I'll never forsake you. And then just hours later, deny him three times. Yet he's the same Peter who, when they hear that the tomb is empty, he rushes there. He's a bold and yet sometimes fallen and broken leader. Second, we're given Andrew, who's the brother of Simon Peter. They were fishing partners and brothers. You can read in John's Gospel, when John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Another disciple of John's and Andrew follow Jesus. So Andrew is one of the earliest disciples of Jesus. And then what did he do? As you continue to read in John's Gospels, he went and got his brother, Simon, and brought him to Jesus. And Andrew's life seems to be characterized by bringing people to Jesus. Once in John 12, these Greeks come to see Jesus and the other disciples are like, well, I don't know, should we bring him? But Andrew immediately goes and tells Jesus there. He brings them to Jesus. Church history tells us that Andrew led a governor's wife to Christ. The governor was so incensed that he crucified Andrew. And yet even on the cross, his cross, not Jesus, Andrew continued to tell anyone who would listen of Christ. Well, third on this list is James the brother of John, and together Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. They were also fishing partners with Peter and Andrew and were from Galilee. Now, if you look at the passages of Jesus' crucifixion and the women that are there, you can look in John, Matthew, and Mark, you can see that Mary's sister, Jesus' mother, Mary, her sister, Salome, was the mother of James and John. So what that means is they are cousins to Jesus. Now that sheds a new light on the fact that when the mother of James and John come and ask Jesus, hey, can my son sit on your right and left? That's some nepotism. That's family trying to work in going, hey, can you give my sons the best position? Well, Jesus then rebukes them and says, no, don't be seeking positions of authority. Seek to serve. And James learns the message. He doesn't stay selfish because 
He's the first apostle to give his life for Christ. And history says that as James goes, he led the man who was leading him to judgment to Christ as well. Well, fourth on the list is John, the brother of James, and the author of the Gospel of John. He's called the beloved disciple. And unlike all the other disciples, he died naturally at an old age and not by martyrdom. He was one of the select three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus often took aside to be with him alone. In his old age, he could no longer go to gather with the people, so they would carry him. And when he was there, history tells us he would tell them over and over, love one another, love one another. Fifth on the list is Philip, which in Greek means lover of horses. In John 1, Jesus personally calls Philip to himself. Philip then goes and calls Nathaniel, who's also Bartholomew. And he tells Nathaniel, hey, I found the Messiah. But yet, though Philip has this enthusiasm, he's like a lot of the other disciples, that he doesn't always fully grasp who Jesus is. So when Jesus gives the wonderful words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, Philip says, well, can you show us who the Father is? He doesn't fully get it. But Jesus explained that he and the Father are one, and to see him is to see the Father. Well, next on the list is Nathaniel, who we just said is also Bartholomew. Bartholomew is the name listed here. And in that account where Philip came to him, Bartholomew says, Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet Philip exhorts him to come and see. And when Nathaniel comes and Jesus talks to him and tells him how he saw him under the fig tree before he was there, he says, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, that wasn't a fleeting profession for after Christ ascended back into heaven, Bartholomew went far and wide proclaiming Christ. He too was eventually killed for his faith in Christ. Seventh in the list in verse 15 is Matthew. He also goes by Levi. This is the Levi that we looked at a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 5, 27 through 36, the tax collector. And after he came to Christ, he threw a party and invited all the other tax collectors and sinners to come. And this was wonderful because it brought these people to Jesus. But though it brought them to Jesus, it brought reproach upon Jesus. Because as we saw, the religious leaders say, no, no, a religious person shouldn't hang out with people like that. And yet Jesus not only went to his house, he calls him to be an apostle to show that he welcomes sinners, tax collectors, outcasts. Eighth on the list is Thomas, who's been marked by the church by one event in his life, doubting Thomas. Well, thankfully, though that is what the church calls him, that's not the way God sees him. Not that it's untrue, it is true that he doubted, but there's forgiveness. Now, your identity is not the sins of your past. Your identity is not what you did that you regret more than anything else. In Christ, we're given a new identity. So we're no longer known as a glutton, or an adulterer, or doubter. We're known as redeemed, adopted, loved. And Thomas' doubt didn't remain. He came to deep faith in Christ, and he went as far as India, telling the good news of Christ. And there he was killed for Christ. Ninth on the list is James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't have much information about him, but there's many James. And so he often gets confused with other disciples in the New Testament. Tenth on the list is Simon, 
who has added to his name the description that he is a zealot. Now, zealots were passionate. Zealous, zealot is where it comes from. Passionate to obey the Old Testament law and to keep the nation of Israel pure. And they thought for us to really be pure, we cannot have any of these Gentiles in our midst. Gentiles like the Romans. So what do we need to do? We need to get rid of the Romans. They're revolutionary as zealots are. They want to overthrow them. It will eventually lead to them seeking to overthrow Rome in 67 AD, which ends in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now they weren't that together at this point, but the beginnings of it were there, this nationalistic movement of zealots. And this is interesting. Of his 12 core followers, Jesus chooses one man who wants to overthrow the Roman government and chooses another man who had been a tax collector who was supporting the Roman government. It's like starting a group and saying, you know what we need? We need a white nationalist supremacist in our country and a progressive socialist. That's who we should get to start our core group. This will help our mission achieve. That's like mixing oil and water. You, wanna, you don't want to bring them together. That's, that's going to blow up. And yet Jesus shows that he is more important than these men's political convictions and that he is in the business of reconciliation. Eleventh on the list is Judas, the son of James, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. And twelfth and last in every of the four lists in the New Testament is Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. You know, Judas' love was money. And even before he betrayed Jesus, Judas was taking advantage of being the group's treasurer and stealing money. Thus, when 30 pieces of silver were offered, it appealed to him more than faithfulness to Jesus. You know, there's nothing externally that made him appear to be a traitor, but Jesus knew from the beginning and yet still chosen. You know, he's a reminder. He's a severe warning that we can be very active, very devoted externally to Christ, but internally have a conflict over what we love most. You know, I, you, we need to heed the warning that any other love in our life must become secondary or it will overcome and kill our love for Jesus. Now, if this were Ed Dias, the man I mentioned in the introduction, and if he was picking men who'd help him escape from prison, this would seem to be a rather horrible selection of men. You know, by any human standard, Jesus chose an odd diverse, and potentially contentious group. This wasn't accidental, though. It wasn't mistaken choice. Jesus chose this diverse and very ordinary group of men for at least three reasons. First, Jesus chose these men because he wants to show that he delights in choosing what the world would consider foolish in order to show his power, wisdom, and might. This is what we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And these were quite ordinary men. They were not great intellectuals or the academic elite of the day. In Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. You know, no one is looking at their PhDs going, well, of course they came up with this viewpoint. I mean, they're really intelligent people. Not at all. Nor were they from an established religious class. As well, they're from Galilee, which to people from Jerusalem, the upper crust of Jewish society, was like West Virginia hillbillies. This would not be the group you would choose to lead. You want the elite. That's not who Jesus chooses. None of them were exceptionally wealthy, except for maybe Matthew the tax collector. These were not brilliant businessmen who could always turn a profit. Yet Jesus chooses the weak, the common, and the poor to bring the message of his salvation. And that should be a great encouragement to many of us. You know, I don't know about you, but not many people are clamoring for my opinion. No one's seeking for my wealth so they can fund their future ventures. Yet the only being in the universe who really matters still calls us to follow him. Others may never take notice. No one else may ever care, but he sent his son for ordinary people like the apostles, like you and like me. And so by choosing these men, Jesus shows us that. But second, by choosing this group, Jesus shows that he transforms and uses sinful men and women. As you read through the Gospels, there's very little that you would go, oh, we should be like Peter. Oh, we should be like that disciple. In fact, the very opposite is true. Jesus often had to rebuke them. For example, right after the Last Supper, Right after they have the Passover meal that it becomes the Last Supper, showing them that Jesus is going to die for them, they start arguing over which of them is the greatest. In Matthew 15, 16, Jesus asked them, Are you still lacking in understanding also? When the time of Jesus' greatest need arose, they all ran away in fear. After his death, they went into hiding. And then, once they knew Jesus arose, and he told them to go, they all went back to fishing. This hardly seems like the type of people a wise person would choose to continue their mission and message once they left. But again, God has always chosen the weak and sinful of the world to do his work. Well, partially he does this because there's no one else to choose from, but he also does this because as it says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. And not to us. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Not the proclaimers of the gospel. And so God picked the weak, the timid, the doubting, the accusatory even of Jesus. And he molded them. And he transformed them into the image of his son. You know, though they all fled at his arrest, every single one of them, minus Judas and John, would then become faithful to Christ to the point of martyrdom. Even in that, it's not that they became perfect. We see Paul still struggling with who should he associate with just Jews or Gentiles. Yet, all of this is great encouragement again. Because you don't have to be of great moral and spiritual caliber to be chosen by God to do his work. You don't need to wait until you have it all together to start serving in his name. You know, you might wonder, well, if others knew the doubts I had, would they really want to listen to what I, say, what I have to say? If others knew my thoughts, my actions, my wanderings, they would never choose to be with me. Yet Jesus knew 
that Thomas would be a doubter. He knew that Peter would be a brash follower, that James and John would have outbursts of anger, want to call down fire and destroy people rather than tell them of the message of deliverance. And we could go on and on with the disciples' sins. Yet Jesus knew, and Jesus chose and chooses and continues to choose broken, sinful people like us. And then as he chooses us, he molds us and shapes us so that we can serve him. Well, third, Jesus chooses this group to show his great power to unify and bring reconciliation. As we already noted, he brought together the political revolutionary and the supporter of Rome. He brought together the doubter, the skeptic Thomas, and the brash optimist Peter. You, know, you have probably heard the saying, birds of a feather flock together. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. We're at that time of year where birds have been flying south. You've probably seen groups of blackbirds or groups of ducks or gaggles or whatever you call these things. Birds are going, lots of them. But you never see flying in one group, blackbirds and ducks and other birds. They fly within their own group. And we know that saying is not just for the birds. Because people like to gather with those who are similar to them. We don't always intentionally or consciously do this, but we naturally get drawn to those that are like us. It may be people of the same race, of the same class, of the same gender, religion, or love for sports teams. And if you were planning a new group that was going to do something, you would never want to try and create a group where what unites the people is so weak that the member's other interest is going to drive them apart. Except here, Jesus seems to be breaking the idea that birds of a feather flock together. He appears to be bringing a group of men that are so unique and different that they can't possibly stay unified. You know, diversity often brings disunity. And Jesus isn't unaware of this because it will bring disunity. Acts 6, Greek widows are going to say, hey, the Jewish widows are getting more than we are. In Galatians 2, there's going to be the disruption between Jews and Gentiles. Yet Jesus draws this group together to show that the greatest causes of division can all go away when he's the center of unification. And so this really is a challenge to us. What is most important in our life? Who do we want to be around us or even in our church? Do they have to follow a certain type of schooling method? Must they vote for a certain political party? Must they share our social interest, our economic class, our race? Or is Jesus so central to our life that though those issues don't become unimportant, they become secondary or trivial in comparison? And though that's easy to talk about here, that's not always easy to do. Some of you may be familiar with the church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And by God's grace, they have a very diverse body racially and politically but this kind of bubbled all and bubbled over into big problems on the sunday after the election in 2016 one of the women of their church stood up the sunday after the election in sunday school and said i don't feel like i can trust the leaders of this church anymore another woman stood up and said i can't believe you would say that and so there's this tension because here's people who vote differently and think at things differently and the unity they had around the gospel seemed to be close to breaking. 
Their pastor, Mark Dever, began his sermon by saying this, Some members of our congregation are happy with the results of this last week's election. Some don't care, and some are scared. It's our job as a congregation to show that the Christ we share is more important than the politics we don't. This church has survived close elections before. It was here when Teddy Roosevelt was elected and when his cousin Franklin defeated President Hoover. We survived Truman v. Dewey, Kennedy v. Nixon, and Nixon v. Humphrey, all close and contentious elections. I was here when we survived Bush versus Gore, and in those days we had Mr. Gore's scheduler as our deacon of sound, while the Republican Senate Majority Leader sat right down there. I pray that we as a congregation can actually see the gospel displayed as we love those who voted differently than us this past Tuesday. And part of that can mean some very difficult conversations, directly with those with whom you have some pretty deep political differences. But part of loving them means being willing to hear them out and believe the best. We will pray for goodness and justice and right to triumph. But we will harbor no illusions that if Gore or McCain or Hillary Clinton had been elected, then the fall would have been reversed. And so we asked so we could talk about this, but then it's actually hard because these people are actually different in some ways. But the question again is, is the Christ we share more important to us than the politics, the race, the social class, or educational model we don't? In my experience, has been that people agree with us up to a point. You know what? We'd love for other people to come join us. Oh yeah, if they want to become like us, that's fine. We have no problem with that. And yet that's not reconciliation. That's saying you become like us. Or many others will say, oh yeah, we want them here, but I really don't want someone from that race marrying or dating my children. We'll welcome them so far, but then we still have our lines that say, really, love for Jesus isn't most important. There are some things our actions show are more important. And yet Jesus here is driving the apostles and driving us to say, is the Christ we share more important than everything else in our lives. Well, Jesus is no longer calling apostles, but he is still calling disciples. Disciples who are broken and in need of change. Disciples who are not great and powerful, but look to the powerful one. Disciples who find their greatest meaning and joy, not in secondary things, but in Christ alone. Jesus is still calling. Have you answered the call? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you choose the weak, the broken, the lame, and you call us. We are those people to yourself. Lord, may we get rid of any of the delusions we have in our mind that think we are what people need, and may we continue to point them to the power of the gospel, the power of your Son. Lord, may he be our hope each day. May we know his deep love for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.